This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, August 6th. 2021, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. This year marks the 75th anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act, as we call it the APA. The APA governs the way administrative agencies develop and issue regulations and grants federal courts oversight over agency actions. Today, we will take a brief look at the history of the APA and what has changed over the last 75 years. We will then discuss modern issues in administrative law and how they impact the civil service. To kick off this conversation, let me introduce our panel. Co-hosting with me today is a colleague of mine, Chris Keevan. Chris is a partner at Shaw, Bransford & Roth, where he represents individuals and organizations in a wide array of civil and administrative litigation. Welcome, Chris, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Natalia. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited for the show today. The, uh, I think the APA really goes to the heart of how the, gov- the federal government and all the different agencies effectuate their mission and provide services uh, to the citizenry. And so I'm really excited to hear what our guests uh, can tell us about that. Absolutely. And let me introduce those guests now. First, we have Adam White. Adam is co-executive director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. He is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome, Adam, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Natalia. Great to be here. Finally, let me welcome Paul Verkeil. Paul is a senior fellow and former president of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He is also President Emeritus of the College of William and Mary. Paul, thank you for joining today's conversation. Uh, My pleasure. Before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that FedTalk is brought to you by the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company, and under a group long-term care insurance policy administered by long-term care partners. To learn more, visit them at www.ltcfeds.com today. Before we dive into the real content focused on the APA, I want to give our listeners an opportunity to learn a little bit more about our guests. So Adam, can you start us off telling us a little bit about the Gray Center and some of your work in this space? I'd love to, thank you. Uh, the Gray Center was founded at George Mason's Law School about five years ago uh, by, uh, by now judge, then Professor Naomi Rao. The idea being that there was so much debate emerging on new and also timeless issues about administration, uh, debate in the courts, in Congress, in the executive branch, in, in academia, that it would be good to have sort of an institutional home for many of these debates uh, in, near Washington, D.C. 
So I've been leading it since 2017. And in addition to that, in my own work, I write on the courts and the administrative state and the constitution and regulatory policy. Thank you, Adam. You know, I, um, as you know, I am a part-time law student at George Mason and the, the Center for the Administrative State is one of the things that really attracted me to the school. So thank you for all your work there and excited to dive into these topics a bit more. Paul, you have been working, living and studying in this space for quite some time. Can you tell us a little bit about your work and what, what got you here today? Uh, sure. The truth is, administrative law has been my professional field for many years at various law schools um, and other institutions. And um, to me, it's, it's essential to, to how I think about uh, the government and about law. Um, I've written a lot. I've done various things that that I think are relevant, but the most important is being chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States for five years during the Obama administration. Um, the Administrative Conference of the United States called ACUS is basically a way to translate the uh, Administrative Procedure Act into action. It, it, there is a real connection. It was started by President Kennedy soon after the APA itself was started, and it does look in detail and provides recommendations about best practices in administrative law for all the agencies. Um, and so that work that we do there, it's been translated from my own scholarship into um, rules and recommendations that we issue for the betterment of agencies and, and the explanation really of, of the Administrative Procedure Act. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, I, I've read a few of your works and I think they're absolutely fascinating and would highly recommend people who are interested in learning more um, to check some of those out. As we get started today with the APA, I think a lot of our listeners who are civil servants have probably dealt with the APA, but may not actually have a clear understanding of what it is or why it is. So Adam, can you start off on a high level telling us what is the Administrative Procedure Act? Sure. The APA was passed by Congress in 1946, so this is the, the law's uh, 75th anniversary, as a comprehensive across-the-board effort to regularize and standardize agency processes. You gotta think that in the 1940s, the administrative sort of modern American administrative state was already about 75 years old if you start counting around the time of the Interstate Commerce Commission. And in those 75 years, you see this alphabet soup of federal agencies develop, many of them doing things in different ways. And so for pro probably about 25 years, you had presidential administrations, academics, lawyers, and others studying ways to formalize the administrative process. And that's what the APA gave us. It's, it provided, I'll just say in general terms, uh, that agency action would largely be subject to these standards uh, for rulemaking, for case-by-case -case adjudication, and then for judicial review of agency action. The APA breaks down basically into those three parts. And what Congress passed in 1946 is still more or less what we have today. There have been things like the Freedom of Information Act and other amendments to it, but 
those core procedures of the APA are still around today. Now, a lot has changed in administration in the last 75 years, needless to say, and there's always been constitutional debates surrounding it, the APA, and so now is, is, is ever a good time to talk about how we, ought, how we ought to understand the APA today. Yeah, and I would love, Paul, for you to jump in a little bit on this idea of celebrating the 75th anniversary, this kind of mile marker in time for looking at the APA and why that matters. Sure. The, um, the truth is, in 1946, when the statute was enacted, it resulted in settling, at that time, a very contentious period about the administrative state that began, of course, during the Roosevelt years, prior to World War II. And uh, there was a tension between those who wanted the judicial system to rule and those who preferred to have administrative law be an independent branch overseen at some level by the judicial system. And so the APA became a, what we would call a compromise from the hardliners who wanted more direct judicial review and direct action by the courts. And those who said, let's have the courts have a follow-on role. Um, in fact, Justice Jackson, in, in a very famous opinion, Wang Yang Sung versus McGrath, right after the APA was enacted, said, its purpose was to bring contending forces to rest. And that's why it's so important. It is the beginning of a agreed settlement. It was unanimous, by the way. It was passed unanimously in both houses of Congress and signed by President Truman. So it is a very important, what's called by the court sometimes, a super statute. And that really resolved most issues at the time in favor of an administrative state overseen by but not displaced by the judicial system. And today, what's interesting, 75 years later, is that some of these contentious issues have arisen again, which we will maybe have a time to talk about. And certainly from a judicial perspective, some of these original concessions may be up for reanalysis. Yeah, we will definitely be diving into more of those issues um, in the coming segments of our show. We do need to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. When we get back, we will continue the conversation with Chris, Adam, and Paul. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are here with Chris Keevan, Adam White, and Paul Verkyle discussing the 75th anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act. In the first segment, we talked about what the APA is on a general level and why it matters that we are celebrating a 75th anniversary. As Paul alluded to, a lot of the issues that started um, and caused the APA are coming back in some interesting ways. But in order to understand why, it's important that we look at how the APA has developed over the last 75 years. 
So let's kick it off uh, this segment with a discussion on what's changed and some of the movements and shifts we've seen over this time period. Paul, would you like to jump in? Uh, sure, sure, thanks. Uh, I think there are two forces at work. One, one thing that's changed in 75 years is that the nature of regulation has changed. We've gone from a period when economic regulation, that is to say regulation of uh, people in an industry was the dominant form uh, of regulation. And agencies like the Civil Aeronautics Board and the Interstate Commerce Commission, which were very well established, have ceased to exist. So that is a shift. And the shift has gone towards um, other kinds of regulation, more complicated social benefit regulation. Think of the um, EPA and, and, and OSHA and things like that. So that, and benefits agencies also, for example, when the APA was passed, there was no social security disability program. There were no food stamps. There were no other, uh, and the VA's roles were, the veteran administration role was very limited. So now we have a lot of issues about allocation of individual grants and also about policy uh, in much larger in terms of the environment and so forth. The other point, and Adam made this earlier, is that the eight, we have shifted from a focus on adjudication to rulemaking. And most agencies now regulate by rule more than adjudication. Um, so that rulemaking itself has become the subject of, an, of judicial review um, in a much different way. Yeah. I I agree with all of that. And uh, by the way, uh, you're kind enough to mention the, the Gray Center. And one thing I'd point out is for the APA 75th anniversary, we helped with the George Mason Law Review to put together a, an entire symposium issue on the origins of the APA and what's changed then with great essays by Paul and by others, sort of thinking through what's, what's changed. I'd add a couple in addition to what Paul pointed out, and Paul pointed out the, the most important ones, the shift from adjudication to rulemaking and the, uh, the shift in industry regulation to social and environmental regulation more broadly. A few more though is, is in the rulemaking process itself, uh, agencies over time have become more savvy in finding ways to avoid rulemaking through things like guidance documents. Guidance documents are, are sort of agency policies and interpretations and other things that don't go through a full notice and comment process. Uh, they're a blessing and a, and a curse. They help us know what the agency knows or, or believes or expects, but they don't go through the same kind of procedure. Agencies have gotten savvier at that. They've gotten savvier at leveraging some of their softer powers uh, through enforcement and through, especially in financial regulation, things like supervisory powers and so on. A lot of nebulous powers that really don't map easily onto the APA, but have become more and more important. There's more questions about judicial review and the sorts of remedies that are appropriate. Should a single trial judge shut down an entire federal program nationwide, or should he just shut it down within his district? Questions like that. And then finally, we see questions about Congress's role in terms of oversight and what it can demand of the executive branch through subpoenas and other things. If we were writing the APA today, I think it would account much more for these issues. Um, but at the same time, I'd say the APA represented a fundamental choice by Congress in 1946 
that it was going, it, it had delegated great powers to agencies that would continue to do so. And that the main task of both the courts and Congress itself through its own Legislative Reorganization Act of 46, passed the same year as the APA, would be to equip Congress and the courts to oversee the agencies as they became kind of a prime mover in policy making. That's a, a huge and consequential paradigm shift in American government, and it continues to be debated. And I think those debates about delegation both surround and also uh, sort of undergird all these debates we have about agency process and judicial review. Now you both you both mentioned that there's been kind of this decline or this shift away from from rulemaking. Um, I know this is probably a, a loaded question, but what is the the significance of that trend um, as far as how these government agencies effectuate their missions? Well, I could say this that um, what happened in the in rulemaking is that the APA created something called informal rulemaking, so-called notice and comment rulemaking, which was a great innovation of its time because it provided for public participation before rules are finally promulgated. And that concept, of course, got carried through and the courts began to intervene and, make, and to ensure that agencies followed the uh, requirements of the informal rulemaking, standards were added judicially to those uh, requirements. And so finally, agencies began to think um, that this is really hard to do rulemaking. We may work two, uh, two years on a rule, and then it gets up to the DC circuit, and it gets set aside. And uh, so uh, we spent a lot of time, and we didn't get anything done. Uh, and that, that instinct sort truly considered them forced them to consider, I should say, alternatives. And so that's where, as, as Adam said, the, the guidance documents came in as a way to say, maybe here's what we want to do, but this is not binding. But still, guidance has an influence because that's how an agency will act. And now the courts are dealing with that issue. But you can see the movement, the more process that's employed, the more the agencies feel like they can't get their job done, and that, and that raises a new tension between the judicial review and, and agency action. One of the sort of challenges about thinking about rulemaking in administration is that we're always comparing it to something else. So in, in the 1940s, say, when the FCC was mostly in the business of granting or denying licenses to radio stations, um, the FCC was hearing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications for licenses. And it made sense to translate some of those proceedings from just case-by-case case adjudication over and over again to, to writing rules and saying, these are the standards we're going to apply in cases to really kind of help settle a lot of issues all at once. As you get further in time though, when, when the FCC is doing things like uh, net neutrality regulation, the open internet order and so on, uh, we're, we tend to compare that to legislation. We ask why is Congress not making these rules? Why is the FCC able to do this through its own unilateral process, which Sure, you know, has some some speed bumps along the way, but it's certainly a lot easier and swifter and more unilateral than Congress. And so there's an instinct to want to put more standards on rulemaking. And then when we get to guidance documents, we say, well, wait a second, agencies are doing all these other things without even going through notice and comment. How do we 
force the agency to do more through the procedures that it just really doesn't want to necessarily comply with, or that at least it finds burdensome. So we're always comparing rulemaking to something else. And as Paul says, the challenge is creating incentives for agencies to go through a rigorous process without disincentivizing the agency uh, from going through the process at all. And so these, these guidance documents that you've referenced, as just to kind of opine in from you know, my, my angle and my, my legal practice and, and you know, as a litigator is they, because they're not a rule, they do not meet the APA's definition of an agency action and of course, only agency actions are subject to judicial review. So it's kind of a interesting way that agencies can effectuate policy without being subjected to judicial review, or as, as Paul alluded to, do all this work and then have it you know, struck down by, by, by the courts. Um, but you, you, Adam, you touched on something else, I think kind of more broadly is, is, is this kind of the, the so-called rise of the administrative state. Um, obviously, the government has, you know, grown exponentially in, in the last 75 years since the creation of the APA. Um, I would uh, certainly welcome your guys, your guys thoughts or, or opinions on, on how that rise in the administrative state and, and how that intertwines with the APA after 75 years. I just say, sometimes it's good to go back to the very beginning. When you look back to 1887, which in addition to being the year of the Interstate Commerce Commission, was also the year that future President Woodrow Wilson issued or published this, this really sort of uh, landmark article on administration. He said, we need more technical expertise in the agencies. We need a separation of politics from administration. You have politics at the top, the president, say the heads of agencies, but you need more space for expertise, especially technical expertise. And that, that distinction makes, makes sense in many ways, but what you see over time is this question of, well, where should politics stop and, and, and technical expertise begin? And that works in both directions. There's a worry that presidents and agency heads will politicize technical matters. But there's also a worry that the technical experts will sort of overstep their mandate and have more and more influence on policy or try to translate real policy or value debates uh, into technical, technocratic, or scientific debates. And I think one of the main arguments around the administrative state today, and it's certainly one that I press in my own work, is that we do actually need more space for politics uh, and, and, and not allow real arguments about value judgments to be mistaken for simple factual arguments. Of course, the facts are important. And as Daniel uh, Moynihan said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Um, so we need to be mindful of the distinction, but we also need to be wary of mistaking a lot of policy disputes for simple or straightforward scientific disputes. So, you know, Adam's point is interesting from the perspective of the career service versus the political appointees. Uh, and that's what it comes down to. And we are going to talk today about the civil service impact of all of this on the civil service. And I think it's good to put that marker in now. Um, the so-called uh, science part or the, or the factual part is supposed to be done by the career people in general. And when they finish all of that and get the facts straight, then the political people should come in and decide how to, to put cast that for, for the purpose of policy making. So there's facts and then there's policy. Um, and I think that 
is a dichotomy that is hard to manage sometimes, but it is real, and it does uh, delineate the difference between political and career um, government officials. Maybe I'd just add one, one more thing. As I said you know, a little bit ago, Congress made a choice in 1946 uh, that the administrators would be, and, with, and the executive branch would largely be in the driver's seat on policymaking under these broad mandates that, from Congress. I'd say another sort of fundamental problem with today's administrative state is that choice has really changed all three branches of government. We, ideally, Congress would make broad laws looking forward president, executives, uh, the administrators would enforce the laws sort of in the present and the here and now, making prudential judgments under the law. And then the courts would look backwards. They would look at the facts that happened, the law that was already written, and they would decide cases. It seems to me now everybody has shifted over one seat. You have uh, the president and the executive branch and the agencies making broad rules looking forward. Uh, you have the courts summoned to sort of jump into the here and now and make a lot of prudential judgments uh, over preliminary injunctions that would block programs in their, in their tracks. And Congress, while it does legislate some and it passes appropriation bills, it mostly looks backwards and it has oversight hearings complaining about what's happened or praising what's happened. You need all three of those things in government, but ideally you have Congress, then the president, then the courts doing things in their original order. That's a really interesting description of the shift um, in terms of the role of each of these institutions. And I do think it's worth asking whether or not this kind of modern landscape we have is in alignment with our kind of original constitutional design or if we've warped it in an interesting and perhaps problematic way, depending on who you ask. That is something that we will dive a little bit deeper into as we look at some of the modern issues in administrative law when we return from our second break. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering the second half of our show on the APA with Adam White, Paul Verkeil, and Chris Keevan. We're now going to look at some modern issues in administrative law. Adam just spoke a little bit about this tension between the branches of government and the constitutional questions that those bring up. Adam, can you just give us another high-level overview of what that looks like? And then, Paul, why don't you discuss how this plays out in actual cases, like, for example, the Chevron Doctrine that is so often hotly debated? Sure. Well, 
let's just say off the bat, there's there are debates about the structure of agencies, how much independence they can have, how you go about appointing people to those agencies. Those are important questions, and maybe we can get to those later. But I guess I'll start with with non-delegation, right? The, the fundamental question is, is there, a, is there a limit on how much power Congress can constitutionally give to an agency? That's a, a century old, or actually two centuries old debate. Um, but quite frankly, the courts have never been very eager to strike down statutes as unconstitutional delegations of power. Rather, we have debates about what statutes mean and also how much deference uh, courts should give to agencies when the agencies are interpreting those statutes. The famous case is Chevron deference. It's a precedent from the 1980s. Uh, in the Reagan era and, and through the Clinton era and onward, conservatives were originally the proponents of Chevron deference because it left more space for agency policymaking. But in recent years, you've seen actually very strong criticism of Chevron from conservative justices, including the late Justice Scalia, who was an advocate for Chevron deference. And in all of this, the courts are asking themselves, what's our job here? How much do we do to interpret the laws? How much weight should we put on agency interpretations? Especially when, again, these statutes are written in very, very broad, nearly open-ended terms. Well, I think that's a good way to frame it. Go back to the branches of government. Obviously, we we know there are three branches, but ever from, from the Roosevelt period on, there was this thing about what is the fourth branch of government, which, of course, doesn't exist in the Constitution. But the fourth branch was said to be the administrative state. And the whole point of these judicial review cases has been to make sure that the fourth branch itself doesn't become more powerful than it has to be, uh, or that it shouldn't even be known as a fourth branch. Um, the Chevron doctrine really grew out of a case in, in the 1980s, an interesting case. I'll just take a few minutes because it tried to resolve these tensions between agency power and judicial review. Uh, Chevron involved a, it was an EPA case um, and involved actually, interestingly, the administrator of the EPA at the time, at the time, and Gorsuch, the mother of our new Supreme, one of our newer Supreme Court justices, decided to make a policy decision and implemented it um, through legal interpretations of the statute. And when it got to the Supreme Court, the question was whether those interpretations should be given some deference or respect by the court as a way of managing the. Uh, relationship with the agency. So at any rate, the Chevron case was decided saying if it's a reasonable interpretation of the law, we should defer to the agency's um, in view. Uh, that is, and if it's clear that it's not wrong, then we should not do it. But deference was the word. Now, this case is the most cited case in the United States Supreme Court and Court of Appeals and since it was decided. So it's a very important point. It was made, I think, as a way of compromising issues so that agencies could function and the courts could function because to do the opposite, which is to say to have de novo review, um, look at everything from a fresh perspective would have burdened the courts greatly in their uh, assignment. So, but this case itself now, as, as has been noted, <laughs> 
is up for grabs really kind of in, in the Supreme Court. Um, it, the truth is we have to have it for some kind of deference to agencies when it makes sense. Otherwise, the management problem for, in the judicial system becomes overwhelming. To start from scratch and review cases is where we began before the Administrative Procedure Act itself was passed 75 years ago. And we probably don't want to return to that state of play. One of the interesting things about Chevron and the way it's been described to me is that originally there were a lot of, some would say more conservatives on the court that were very much in favor of Chevron from the perspective of tamping down what they viewed as judicial activism and getting involved in the executive branch in a way that was almost an overreach of judicial power. And now we see the attack on Chevron as it's viewed almost as an abdication of judicial power. And I think it is a very interesting case study in the tensions between the branches of government that Adam described before. Adam, I wanted to return to one point you made about uh, non-delegation, because I do think it's interesting, as you kind of alluded to, that the courts have been very hesitant to strike down uh, congressional statutes in terms of delegation. I believe it's only been done twice uh, in our nation's history that the courts have said, you know, this is an unlawful delegate or an unconstitutional delegation of authority. Uh, do you think that we're going to see a return to this issue of delegation and perhaps courts taking a larger role in that in uh, the coming years, particularly looking at some cases in these uh, last few years, uh, such as the Gundy case, which was, you know, it came out on the side of not striking down a statute, but there was some pretty forceful dissents arguing that non-delegation should be something we consider again. Well, there are certainly five justices right now who expressed an interest in revisiting the issue. They haven't necessarily all said what they would replace the current sort of hands-off approach to these delegation questions would be. Um, it's interesting to see them work their way through it. There's certainly a lot of lower court judges and academics and others who would like to see a, see much more judicial scrutiny of these delegations. There are also a lot of judges and academics who think that the, 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 the current arrangement is the right arrangement. So we'll see how it plays out. And it might result not, not necessarily in courts striking down more statutes that's unconstitutional. It might result in more courts interpreting statutes narrowly to avoid non-delegation problems. That's been primarily the way that non-delegation questions have been really enforced by the courts since the 1940s. Even in recent cases, uh, there was a case about 10 years ago in the Supreme Court called Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA. It involved one of the Obama administration's sort of second round of climate regulations and uh, first round of climate regulations. And, and the court, said in an opinion by Justice Scalia that the statute, it's open, it's pretty open-ended, but not completely open-ended. And we're gonna reject the agency's interpretation of the statute here, really informed by the risk that if we were too deferential here, we would be opening the door to just totally standardless statutes being enforced by the agencies. So we'll see how it plays out. But again, just because there are five justices who agree that this deserves reconsideration doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be five justices who agree on the proper result. You have to look at what would be the effect of striking down a statute. 
under the non-delegation doctrine, I'm sure the justices are concerned because the effect is basically to send it back to Congress and say, try again, write another statute. Now, you know how Congress is working. This is our Article One, but Congress is not doing much legislating these days. And it's a result of the political process we're in. The chances of them coming up with new statutes in, in a whole lot of fields are very, are very slim, in which case then you have, what do you have then? You have an abyss, a legal abyss. So I don't think the court wants to get into that, uh, even though they would, as, as Adam suggests, come up with some more ways to narrow administrative power. Um, Paul brings up, I think, a real interesting point of how our current political climate, I, I think, can skew our, our perspective. Um, I, I think there's probably, you know, a certain segment of the population that um, that likes the administrative state and likes the authority that the administrative state has has been delegated to because they can actually get things done. Um, but if you look at, you know, a, a, a natural plain, you know, reading of, of our constitution, it's the legislative branch. It shouldn't be the one legislating. Um, you know, and it, there's, I think there's a lot of valid questions of why are agencies doing these things that are in, you know, I think in many's views, inherently the power of, of Congress. So I, you know, I, but you know, so it's how do you distinct that the constitutional uh, requirements versus, you know, the current landscape that we're in. If I could challenge my friend Paul a little bit, he points out that Congress isn't working well. I, I, I sometimes wonder if maybe the relationship works in the opposite direction as well. It's true that often when Congress won't act, the president will. But I think, I wonder if it's also true that because presidents and agencies will act, everybody knows that under the existing statutes, agencies have a lot of runway. Because of that, Congress has less incentive to actually do the like the real work of legislation, which is deliberation, debate, compromise, um, log rolling, and so on. If you're in the president's party, there isn't a whole lot of incentive to compromise when you know that your president can try to do basically what you want to do on his own. And by the same token, if you're in the opposite party, why venture a compromise? when you don't expect the, the president to necessarily want to compromise. Um, and for both parties, their risk is, is if they venture a compromise, they could get primaried by somebody who's on their right or on their left, depending on which party. And so I guess what I'm saying is that the administrative agencies are definitely more efficient than Congress when it comes to getting things done. But, by, but for that very reason, we've come to actually demand less and less of Congress. All of our political energy flows into the administrative debates rather than to Congress. And maybe if the courts would put some limits on agencies, either by striking statutes down, and we strike a lot of statutes down in the courts, not just administrative ones, but if we struck some of these down or at least narrowed them through strict interpretations, it would really would put the burden back on Congress to do something. And maybe if we actually challenged it to do something, it would do something. Well, let's see how this infrastructure compromise, this bill, if it passes, then I, maybe I'd be a little more optimistic about Congress's potential to reach some middle grounds. It's up to the voters, too, to, to hold. Uh, if, if Congress isn't doing what the public wants, rather than just allow the administrative state to run wild, you know, I think that's where the, the voters come in. Or likewise, if the executive oversteps his or her bounds, you know, I mean, there is voter accountability at the end of the day in, in all of this, or there should be. Um, 
but no, this is this is one of the you know just the fascinating uh, aspects of the administrative state uh, the debate that that really you know enticed me to to participate in today's show. But um, uh, Natalia, uh, I think we need to take a break. Yes, but before we do, I want to spend the last couple minutes of this segment looking at uh, kind of a different area of constitutional. Uh, debate right now within the courts, which is removal authorities. And Adam, if you could provide us with a little bit of an overview of some of the recent issues we've seen in terms of leadership within agencies, kind of those political divides that you discussed earlier and how they're playing out in the courts. Sure, Natalia. Well, at the sort of the highest level of generality, and I'm sure Paul will add a lot of detail, I'd just say that in recent years, the fights over agency structure really have been one of the key battlegrounds in the courts over administration, questions of agency independence, also of, of executive officer independence, like the independent counsel uh, back in the, the Clinton years and the Reagan years. We've seen more and more of these debates. In fact, when I was in private practice a decade ago, I helped file the original constitutional lawsuits against the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, its structure gave it a lot of independence without a multi-member agency structure. Over and over again, courts are asking themselves, how independent should agencies be allowed to be, given that our constitution vests the executive power in the president, not in individual agencies? And also, since the constitution specifies a process for appointing officers, uh, we, the courts have to ask whether certain agency personnel can be appointed through, uh, through, through civil service, through competitive service, and so on, or do they require full presidential appointment with the advice and consent of the Senate, or at least appointment by the head of the agency? Yes, those are that was a great little overview, and we will dive into exactly how this impacts the civil service and some more details about these issues when we return from our final break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering our last segment of the show where we will discuss the implications of the legal issues we've been reviewing for the civil service and administrative agencies. Right before the break, Adam gave us a little overview of some of these issues in regarding the structure of administrative agencies. Paul, can you give us a little bit more detail on that and how they're impacting the civil service? Uh, yes, uh, I think your listeners would really be very interested in, in what we're going to say now in this last segment, uh, because take take Adam's case. Let me just set it up for them. Um, he talked about the uh, this CFPB, a Consumer Financial Protection Board case, which he worked on. And that case involved whether or not the, uh, the head of the CFPB could have four cause removal, which was provided for in the statute, or whether or not four cause removal was something that was limited to a group of uh, deciders, such as the FTC or, or the FCC. 
And they said, no, a single-headed agency can't have for-cause removal. Now, that's fine. Um, it narrows the for-cause concept. And by the way, for-cause just means you can't fire, if you're the executive, chief executive, you can't fire somebody just because you don't like what they do. You have to have a reason, you have to have cause. Um, and, and that can be interpreted in a variety of ways, but cause is important. So that's why it, it really segues into the civil service because after all, you can't fire civil servants except for cause either. Um, and if in fact the concept of for cause removal is, is very much narrowed, then even one could argue that the civil service itself doesn't, isn't entitled to that. Um, and this is where I, I find myself really uh, concerned um, because to me, the civil service is, has to be, while not independent from the executive, it has to have some independence behind it. And I, you know, I, I'm just thinking of people who make decisions, go back to the dichotomy between facts and policy. Um, civil servants make decisions and they have integrity. And that is part of this decision process. They think hard about something, they analyze it, and they have integrity. Now, and that, in order to preserve that integrity, you know, you need some protections for the civil servants who act, um, a kind of tenure process. Um, and by the way, as a former head of a university, the College of William & Mary, I'm not really afraid of tenure, uh, although I can understand why some might be questioning it. Um, so what happens is once the civil service acts, we need to give them some room um, to preserve their independence. But of course, the executive, the chief executive um, has his own powers too, the president. Um, and I mean, I'll just put it in terms of recent cases that we've seen during the Trump years. Um, what about Colonel Vindman? who gets, decides to go forward and talk about in, what he knows. Should he be protected? Should the whole idea of independence and dissent uh, be part of a civil servant's uh, really rights and, and needs? Um, I, I think for the Department of State, think about the dissent channel where they formally say, uh, career people should be able to talk about policy and give their opinions without having paying a price. So I think there is a need for some protections. Um, now, I also think, for example, the um, inspector general process, which has been so prominent in the last four years, is something we need to preserve, which is, again, checking the executive branch, but also making sure that the independence of agencies and their uh, actions are protected as well. Um, and I really I think that's where we are today. We're, we're challenging these things very much, but we need to remember that what we, why we have a civil service is that we came out of what was called the spoils period where you could, every president could appoint anyone they wanted each time they come, took office and people didn't have any rights in, in their positions. I agree completely. We do need a civil service for the reason Paul, you know, identified. By 1883, 
it was clear that the government's administration was totally dysfunctional because it was a spoil system where jobs were handed out as political rewards or inducements and not really for, for actual functioning government. And so the question really is what kind of civil service do we want and, and what role does it play? Uh, I like Paul worry when, when people in the civil service are punished for giving their candid opinions. We should want a system in which the people in the agencies are able to give their best expert judgment or even their best policy opinions uh, up the food chain to management. And then the question is what happens when, when the president or the head of an agency makes a decision, right? How does dissent play into that? I, there I worry in the other direction that civil servants uh, are often too slow or, or there's a risk that they'll be too slow to administer policies that they personally disagree with. And so the challenge is always how we strike that right balance. I think it would be a great mistake to get rid of the civil service altogether. I do think it's worthwhile to think about the civil service at this moment in time or at any moment in time and how we ought to recalibrate it. Now, on these questions of, of, of the authority of people pretty high up in agencies, so not, not necessarily the agency heads, but people maybe one low, level below them and also uh, the administrative law judges within agencies. I think there are real questions about how accountable they ought to be. My, my co-director at the Gray Center, Professor Jennifer Mascott, wrote a really, I think, a landmark article thinking through that aspect of constitutional structure and arguing for more accountability politically for people near the top of agencies when they exercise real power. And, and that does include administrative law judges. Uh, Paul might disagree with me on, on where ALJs stand in all this, but that's that's Jennifer's view. That's that's my view as well. And so I think recent efforts to move ALJs into a, an appointment process uh, by agency heads outside of competitive service, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And and I think that uh, it's that I know the House is considering reforms. I hope that we continue to try to draw lines where possible, even if it's hard, between the real policymakers in an agency and and the these the straightforward technical experts. I think that you're you you make a real valid point of it's it's that drawing the line because we have had a four cause system since the 1880s with the the Pendleton Act, um, and of course I, I think. I think most Americans would agree we don't want to go back to a spoil system because if we're appointing, if we're you know giving out federal government jobs based on a spoil system, then does that in turn mean the government is giving out its benefits and exercising its authority based on a spoil system, which is you know of course very un-American. And so where where is that line and, and how do we draw that line between for cause protections for civil service versus the, the executive's power under the appointment clause to appoint, uh, you know, officers and high-level officials to effectuate the president's policy um, is is a very challenging question and something that the the courts have, in I think, in, in recent years, really been grappling with 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 various decisions like Lucia, Free Enterprise, Arthrax. Um, so it's a really fascinating question that I, I think it's. Again, this 75 years of the APA, the, the rise of the administrative state, and these tensions between the various powers of the three branches, that's kind of, I think, still being sorted out. And it's, I think it's really fascinating where, where this area of the law is, is, is going to go and, and how those questions are ultimately answered. So um, I'm happy we all agree on the need for the civil service and avoiding the spoil system. I must say, as a 
plug, I wrote a book called um, Valuing Bureaucracy, uh, which delves in depth into these fields and these questions. Um, but I do want to uh, highlight one point. It is true that uh, we, Adam mentioned the administrative law judges and the question is whether they should be in the competitive service or the accepted service. They were put in the accepted service by, uh, by uh, President uh, Trump um, and uh, by executive order. And now there's legislation saying to return them to the competitive service. And I, I think it's, it's worth considering that uh, issue. Um, the ALJs are very important to the decision process and their independence must be ensured. And that's what this legislation is, is trying to do. Uh, at the same time, I think you need flexibility and management in terms of how you hire them. And maybe agency heads should have more authority, which were, had been granted uh, in the Trump memorandum. So that's gonna be debated in Congress. But let me take us from ALJs who decide after all cases that come before the agency. To the, and that's one thing. And I think ALJs should have independence for due process purposes, because you can't very well be someone who appears uh, as a defendant, let's say, before the Securities Exchange Commission and has, doesn't believe that the administrative law judge is independent from policy making up done by the agency head. So that's very important. But is it also important, as I believe, actually, that we should have some independence for administrative, or rather for civil servants generally in the policy field, not the adjudication field. Uh, and that's where the tensions lie. Um, the, the civil servants that we know and, and admire, and, and I would put people like, uh, like Mr. Fauci on the list, uh, people who are doing their job in difficult times. This is the COVID period, as you well know. This is a period where science itself is being questioned, where the CDC, the Center for Disease Control has gotten, that's a very famous agency, important independent agency, has gotten challenged in various ways. But we need these people and we have to have confidence in them and trust them to lead us in the right direction. Uh, and that, that quality, that, that, we can't have too much expertise and, and um, really good judgment in the, in the civil service. We need to encourage this. This is how the government should run. Um, now, I have one good note. The Biden administration has issued a, a, a memo from the uh, White House counsel, Dana Remus, which prohibits contacts by the White House with agencies and departments. Um, it was just issued on July 21, um, and it does say the White House has no role in intervening in certainly in with cases before agencies, specific parties, or communicating uh, on policy matters without very careful um, control by the White House itself. So that the notion that the White House can come in and change outcomes or, or affect things, which is was I think uh, afoot here in the last four years is being drawn back on and, and a very clear line is, and a signal is being sent by the White House that the role of the president is, is limited in very important ways. Um, and this thing to me is exactly what we need to have from the, from the administration.
Thank you, Paul. I think, you know, going up to this memo just in the last couple of weeks really highlights how these are ongoing issues regarding the tensions between branches that aren't going to be solved, you know, immediately, but are really causing us to look at our constitutional structure, look at the structure of government that we have versus what we want, and ask these important questions that are only going to continue uh, to be addressed in the courts and across the executive and legislative branches. That is all the time we have for our show today. But I want to thank Adam White, Paul Verkeil, and Chris Keevan for joining me and thank all of you for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend.